Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for just the privilege that we have had to be here this morning and to lift up your name and to to worship you and, and song, to lift up our prayers. Lord, to see the covenant sign administered. Lord, you have been so good to allow us to be in your presence. But God, there is nothing more than we need to hear from you today. And so we pray as we come before you now that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, that you would help us to listen, not just to understand, but we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit to work deep in our hearts, God, in, in, our, in us to change our wills, to, to follow you, to love you. God, may we be compelled even to leave this place with our hearts burning to tell others of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, sometimes I, I hear people talk about the need of making the Bible relevant. And, and I just have to say, anytime I hear that, I, I have to sort of silently sort of chuckle inside. I think there's no other book that's more relevant than the Word of the Living God. And there's passages, I think, that drive that home more than others. And our passage today is very applicable. What causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? Now, this is a passage where we live, is it not? I mean, I don't care whether it's your kids that are fighting and struggling and sort of squabbling over things, or, or whether it's a disagreement between a boyfriend and a girlfriend, or a, a husband and a wife, or uh, the, the difference of opinion at work over how to do something, or maybe in the church, you know, whether we should have had the children's sermon sheet look one way or another way, whether we should have uh, kept the plastic chairs or used these nice, comfortable chairs, whatever it might be, you know, whenever you get a group of people there, there's no lack of opinions, right? Amen? And uh, so we very much understand this, and we understand what it means to struggle with conflict. But, but how does it get started in the first place? Where did conflicts come from? And I want us to look at just the first three verses at James chapter 4, where we look at the cause of the conflict, the course of the conflict, and the cure of the conflict. The cause, course, and cure of, of conflict. Now, but before we do, we need to really look at the context. And that's why I wanted us in our scripture reading to go back and pick up and reading in uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Because in that, James speaks about two different kinds of wisdom. He talks about an earthly wisdom, or as we referred to it last week, a hellish wisdom. Because it says that it is demonic it's not just earthly wisdom, but it comes from Satan. And that is a wisdom that is contrasted with heavenly wisdom, with wisdom that comes from above, from God. And he, James concludes in verse 8 this way. He says, and, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And what he's saying is, is for those that have this heavenly wisdom, this is the outcome of their life. There is a sense of peace. And his point is, is that as we live according to true wisdom, it produces a calm and a peaceable way of dealing with conflict and controversial matters. And, and I don't mean a peace at the expense of truth. That, the idea of peace and truth obviously go together. But, you know, um, 
you know, but James is really saying almost in the same breath to the church that, you know, we are to have this peace that comes out of wisdom. He says, but why is it that you are not living as you ought to live as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do you have platitudes instead of real peace with each other? Why is it that you have fights instead of fellowship with one another? Why is it that you have strife instead of sanctification in your midst? And it does seem rather counterintuitive to think that people who have been shown such grace and such mercy by their Lord and Savior would bite and devour one another. But we see that in so many different books of the Bible. In Corinthians, we see it in Galatians. You know, and you don't have to be around the church very long to run into someone who sort of fills the description of someone who's fighting and quarreling, right? Now, I don't know about you. I hope this has not been your experience, but I know the church I grew up in, there was a lot of bickering, unfortunately. And I sort of grew up with the mentality that I would rather work with unbelievers than with believers. Because believers, I knew, could be ruthless in, in terms of the use of their tongue and the gossip and the hurtful things that, that could be said. You know, and, uh, and oftentimes that's the case. You know, inconsistency, unmortified, sinful attitudes and downright hypocrisy are found, you know, in really just about every church to some degree or another. I mean, even so much so that James says in James 3, verse 10, my brothers, these things ought not to be. And so James writes to a real situation in which there was strife between those who profess to be Christians. Situations no different in principle from what we have all seen and to which in one way or another we've all probably been party to. To situations which need to be resolved with brokenness of heart and a contrition of spirit so that true healing of the gospel may be experienced and the world that watches may see that Christianity is different and that their Savior is truly powerful to save. Amen? But oftentimes the world looks at the church and says, Wow! Why would I ever want to be a part of that? Look at the way that they treat each other. So I want us to pause and to look at this text today and, and to break it down into these three points that I've already made. And first of all, looking at the cause or of, of conflict or the origin of, of conflict in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Well, kids, you don't have to be an adult to answer this question, do you? I mean, let's just say, kids, you have spent hours, and I mean hours, building a Lego creation, right? And you get this all done. You got this wonderful Lego thing built, whatever it is, and your mom calls you to come and to do something. So you leave the room, and you come back just a minute later after you've done what your mom's told you to do, and you realize that your little sister has crushed your Lego creation. Oh, I can see it on your faces. Oh, there's going to be death. I mean, you just, you just can't believe that. Or let's say, you know, and so you look at that and you say, what causes fights and quarrels? It's my little sister. Right? Or let's just, let's talk to the grown-ups. Maybe you're at work and a co-worker borrows a tool or an instrument that you need to do your job. But they do that without asking. And you're under a deadline and you come back to do your job and this piece is missing. 
And then you find out that a coworker took it because they had misplaced or they had broken their tool. They had abused that. And so now, because they had not acted responsibly, now you're suffering and you're feeling the pressure of the deadline. Why is it that you're frustrated with them? It's because of their incompetence, right? And because they are insensitive. Well, we like to think that any time there is conflict between us and someone else, it's because we are taking a stand for principle. And we are right and they are wrong, right? Isn't that how we are? And, and let's be honest, you know, sometimes that is the case. Sometimes we are right. And uh, like in the case with the little sister, you know, she can't be right, right? And, and so we, we feel that. But one of the things that we need to realize is that in conflict, everybody on either side believes that the other person is to blame. Or at least more to blame, maybe I should say. So, so we tend to excuse ourselves of any real wrongdoing or having mixed motives. And, you know, we oftentimes see this when somebody has wronged us. What do we do when somebody has done something wrong against us? We like to rehearse their sins. Okay? But we're Christians. So we know, we know how to do that in a sanctified way. Right? Okay? So, you know... Yes, I've been suffering this week. You know, just, just, just pray for me. Pray for me. I've been having a hard week. You know, this person, blah, 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 blah. And we sort of just rehearsed their sins and spread the gossip of what they did wrong against us. Or we go to a Christian and say, you know, brother, sister, I'm really struggling with something. I just need your advice. Could you help me? You know, I, I don't want to speak ill of anybody. But just just help me. And then we just sort of rehearse their sins and just tell everybody, you know, what's going wrong. Because we see it as it's the other person's fault. It's always the other person who is at fault and who needs to change his ways. But it's interesting that in the midst of conflict, it's rare for a believer, a person to perform heart surgery on themselves and take time for candid self-examination on the motives of their own hearts. But that's what James does here. James says that what we need is um, what causes quarrels and fights among you. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Do you hear that? The cause of conflict is not what happens outside of us or our circumstances. The problem comes from within us. So, kids, the reason you get angry with your little sister is not because she knocked down your Lego creation. It's because of your desire inside of you that you want what you want, right? You want what you want. Uh, the word passion here, or desire, means the gratification of the flesh, giving into the desire you have for the things you want. It is a desire to have it my way or else. And this is, we see this even in the Bible. I mean, you think about King David. He was a godly, wise, capable leader over the nation of Israel. He was a good man who followed the Lord. We see the Bible talking about David as being a man after God's own heart. But tragically, his unrestrained lust led him to commit the heinous sin of adultery with Bathsheba, as well as then to murder her husband. And as a result, there was much pain and conflict and tragedy in David's household. Well, these passions or these desires are at war within us. And we see Paul talking about that. You know, 
Kids, do you ever feel like this? You know what you're supposed to do. You might even want to do what you're supposed to do. You know, you know, the Bible talks about how to love your brother, how to be patient with others. And you might try to do that so much, but you feel this war because you also want to do what you want to do. Right. And you're wrestling. And Paul talks about that in Romans seven. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I want to do what God's word says. He says, but I see in my members, that is the members of his body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You see, these passions are particularly connected with our body and our, our natural appetites. These desires arise up inside of us, but our bodies oftentimes carry those out, right? You know, have you ever seen two little kids? I mean, we're talking about babies here. You don't even have to teach babies how to sin, do you? They just automatically know how to do it. So one little baby is playing with a toy on the floor, right? And they're just enjoying it. And the other baby comes up and sees it. What do they do? They grab it and they jerk it out of their hands. It's because those selfish desires that are inside of them works its way out through their body and their body carries out that selfish desire. Or it might be, as we saw in James 3, the words that we speak, the desires that we have. And so we use our words to attack others and to, to fulfill those desires. And we oftentimes fight hard not to give in to these selfish desires, but they, they oftentimes just keep raising their ugly heads. I like how one person put it. They said, these passions are the weeds of the soul. The weeds of the soul. Now, any of you that have a garden, you understand this. You know, you work really hard to pull up all your weeds, right? Keep your garden looking nice, and, and you work all summer, and everything looks so great. But then towards the end of the summer, you go on vacation for a week. Just a week. That's all. We're talking seven days. Not long at all. And yet, when you come back, what does your garden look like? It looks like a jungle, doesn't it? Weeds everywhere. It's because it's been raining in Kansas, and the weeds are growing, and they've taken over your vegetable garden. And that's oftentimes what our passions and our desires are like. You know, John Calvin says, He who allows his sinful propensities or his sinful tendencies to rule uncontrolled will know no end to his lust. And that's what we oftentimes struggle with. So you see the, the passions that we war with are sinful and selfish desires that really gnaw away within us in order to, to give us our own ways. In every conflict in our lives, there is a love for control over others. Amen? Don't we want to be right? Right? We know we're right. Well, of course. Yeah. You know? So we have that kind of love. You know, to, to control over others. We want to be right and we want to be in control. So kids, let's go back to the example of your little sister who just destroyed your Lego creation. You're sitting there and your mouth is dropped open. I cannot believe she did this. I spent hours on this. I was obeying our mother and doing what I was supposed to do. And this is a reward I get. And you're just looking at this pile of Legos. And you're thinking, What? And of course, you know that it's your sister's fault, right? Well, let me, let me just, just think with me through this scenario just a minute. What would happen, kids, if as you're looking at this pile of Legos with shock on your face, you decided 
that you wouldn't react to your sister? What if you decided to forgive her? And you're not going to say any angry words. You're just going to pick up your Legos. You're going to take them into another room. And you're going to start building your creation again. How much of a fight would there be? None. None whatsoever. So it's not your little sister that causes the fight. It's those desires and those expectations that you have inside you that are not met that cause you to become angry. And the reason you fought with your sister is is that you wanted to build something out of the Legos and you expected to enjoy your masterpiece. But when your sister destroyed your creation, she denied you what you wanted. You know, it's in the same way with the co-workers. We have those expectations that we ought to be able to do our job and to do those things. And those aren't bad expectations. But oftentimes people get in the way. You know, God sometimes brings people into our lives as instruments, a lot like a scalpel in the hand of a surgeon to frustrate us and cause us conflict in our lives to show us that the desires of our hearts are set on the wrong thing, that they're not set on the Lord but they're set on the things that we want. And it takes the Holy Spirit-empowered self-control to produce consistently the peaceable fruit of righteousness in our hearts. And if righteousness loses in the battle within us, then it will soon break out into the battles outside of us. It's inevitable that pride and selfishness in one person will eventually clash with selfishness and pride in another person. So that's sort of the... the the cause of, of our conflict. Let's look at the course of our conflict in verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, George was a perfect picture of a rough and unruly child. He had curly red hair that sort of uh, matched uh, his outgoing and confident personality, uh, backed up by a tongue that insisted on getting his own way. His motto was, I want it too. So whenever his brother or sister or somebody else got something, he always said, I want it too. You know, and he would insist upon his own way. And George would insist until he got what he wanted or his attitude was checked by his parents' discipline or by his uh, sibling self self-defense. But the interesting thing is George was only three. But he knew what he wanted. And that's that word desire. It literally means to be hot for a thing. Okay? It is the idea that it burns people up to be denied what they want. You want something, but you don't get it. So you kill, murder, and covet, but you cannot have what you want, so you fight and quarrel. Now, James tells us that these desires get so strong sometimes within us that if we don't get what we want, we're going to kill, we're going to murder someone. Now, we need to understand this language that James is, is using in these two verses. In verse 1, where he talks about the words quarrels and fights, when they're used together, they can mean literally wars or battles. And in verse 2, you know, when you factor in this idea of murder, as the ESV says, some of your translations may say kill, you can make a good case that James is referring to actual violence amongst the members of the church. And as one commentator put it, he said, when tempers are hot and restraint melts away, as they always do in such circumstances, then anything is possible, even killing. Now, most commentators 
for good reason, and I won't go into the explanation as to why. You can catch me afterwards and we can talk about it. But they, they really uh, agree that this is not talking about actual physical violence. You know, it's, it's really more along the lines of what John says in 1 John 3.15 where he says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Or in Matthew 5.21-22 where Jesus likens angry words to murder. You know, we can do character assassination. We can kill people with our words, in essence. People murder in their hearts, never lifting a dagger, okay? And there's no literal corpse. But brothers and sisters, don't miss the point that James is making here, that this kind of conflict is serious amongst God's people. That we think because there's not a pool of blood here, Forgive me, parents, for being graphic. But there's no pool of blood here or there's no literal corpse here. It's not so bad. But James wants us to see that this is horrific in the eyes of the Lord that God's people are, are, are devouring one another and killing one another. It's, it's, it's good for us to pause and to let that sink in because I think we just oftentimes think, oh, yeah, he's just talking about our words. It's not that big of a deal. But it really, it really is. And so we see this murderous attitude too often in the fellowship of the church. Satan is always trying to bring division in the body of Christ. I don't care. Maybe it's a church business meeting, you know, where people stand up and, and uh, they, they have, you know, they're speaking careless words of slander towards other people. They don't mention names, but they'll say things like, well, you know, some people in the church think we ought to do that, but that's just stupid. You know, everybody knows that what we really ought to do is we ought to do this. Or maybe it's done in Bible studies or personal conversations where we sort of have agendas and we sort of side up with other believers and talk about other groups in the church. Too often, as Paul says, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is perverted by human sin into an unholy justification for spiritual pride and broken fellowship. But brothers and sisters, James is not just talking about that broken fellowship with each other. He's also talking about broken fellowship with God himself. He says in verse, at the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. James seems to be reminding his readers of our Lord's words in Matthew 7, where Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. And then later on he goes and he says, for everyone who asks receives. Now, for some of the believers... Uh, James is saying you don't have because you don't lift up your needs before the Lord and you don't pray. You don't ask for this. And maybe this is the case because they know that their motives are wrong and their attitudes are selfish and they're self-centered. I mean, how many times when you have been in the midst of conflict with someone else, whether it be in the church or outside the church, are you given to prayer? How often... Is your life characterized by intimate prayer with the Lord? No. Oftentimes, we're very much, uh, you know, um, only thinking about the ways that we have been hurt. And so we oftentimes don't pray. Well, then he goes on in the next verse where we sort of see the cure of this conflict or the answer where he says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You know, so some of the people were probably saying to James, Now, wait a minute. We do pray. You know, but we pray and God still doesn't answer our prayers. And James says the reason why God doesn't answer your prayers is because you are asking with wrong motives. 
You know, James knows that just because we ask something of God, it doesn't mean that God will grant any old desire that we have, whether, you know, meaning our sinful desires. When we ask God for something, uh, it carries with it the idea of examining our desires to see if what we are asking is according to his will. Is that what, you know, is that what I want um, when, we, when we're in the midst of conflict? Do we take those times to stop and to meditate upon the motives of our hearts? Uh, we need to ask ourselves, how do my desires that have been eating me up with frustration and anger measure up against God's will? These are the questions that James is, is raising here. James knows that wherever there is true fellowship with the Lord and true prayers offered up to him, there's the attitudes and motives of not my will, but God's will be done. I know one of the things that we talked about as a church when we went through the study on the Lord's Prayer, so many of you said to me, Pastor Rick, this has just been eye-opening to me to see that as you're looking at the Lord's Prayer, you know, look at the whole beginning of it. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the first petition. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, it's, it's, everything is about God's will being done. But so often as we come to the Lord in prayer, we come saying, Lord, would you do this and this and this and this? And we want to turn God into a giant Santa Claus or a puppet that is an almighty puppet that will just do our will. And oftentimes that's how we can come to the Lord when we're in the midst of conflict. But the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 66, 18, If I had cherished iniquity or sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Once again, John Calvin says, Prayers of that sort, you know, that's prayed selfishly, uh, wish to make God the minister of our own lust. Isn't that true? We want God to, to be the minister of our own lust. We will let worldliness control our lives. We deny the holiness of God. Instead, we want to use him, like I said, as an as a almighty puppet. But a constant and faithful prayer life is the great cure to the rise of our sinful desires and overwhelming pride. Brothers and sisters, when Christians pray Properly, When we're praying more from God's perspective and not just our own desires, when we do that individually and we do that corporately, the windows of heaven open and the cancers of self and strife wither in the healing breath of the Holy Spirit. We see a real change in the heart of a church. Uh, Psalm 145 says that God fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and he saves us. And so how is, can we put an end to that, that, that inner, that, those things that work themselves out into strife and conflict? As long as we are wrestling with the Lord God in prayer, we will not be consumed with sinful strife. Neither will we be fighting with other people. You know, I'm not saying we're going to do it perfectly. I'm not saying we're never going to struggle or have conflicts. We are. But if we are constantly wrestling and doing battle with those passions that we have within us, then we, w- we can stand firm in the Lord. So kids, when your sister is standing there in front of your pile of Legos and your mouth is dropped open and you're looking there like, I cannot believe she did that. Rather than being angry, you should pray for your little sister. You should forgive her. You should love her. 
And it says we pray as believers and live in that fellowship with the Lord that we also share with believers and we become much deeper in our relationships with one another. You know, there's the old cliche, the family that prays together stays together. That's very true. You know, in the prayer of a, of a fellowship, lives are opened, burdens are, are shared and joys and sorrows are poured out before the Lord in such a way as to receive the blessing of the Lord. And that's one of the desires that I have for our church, that we would be a praying church, that we would be there with one another. It's really hard to fight with somebody that you pray for. It really is. You know, if you don't, if you don't believe me, if you have someone you have conflict with and they're another believer, I would encourage you to be so bold as to say, can we start praying together? I would encourage you to do that. And then see how easy it is to continue to have conflict with that person. So this morning as we, as we come to James, I want us to ask, what are the desires that you are wrestling with this morning? You know, you may think that it's not a huge problem if you're living in conflict, maybe with your spouse or with a friend or with someone at work, whatever it might be. But God uses language to tell us otherwise, that this is a serious matter. So what are the things that you want that you're not currently getting? And I want you to understand this morning that Jesus understands your desires and your struggles. He was tempted as we are in the wilderness. I just think about Satan. Satan came to Satan, or Satan came to Satan. Satan came to Jesus, and he offered him everything that Jesus came to, to fulfill. What did Satan say? You want the kingdoms of the earth? You bow down before me, worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. But Jesus knew that Satan is a liar. He would not, uh, that would not fulfill God's calling for his life. And so Jesus obeyed his father. In the Garden of Eden, or Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Jesus suffered so much so that he sweat drops of blood. He suffered the ridicule of standing on trial before a group of people who had to lie and to pay people to say lies about Jesus in order for them to get an accusation to stick. He suffered physically and emotionally as he was beaten and battered before the soldiers. He suffered the agony on the cross. Why did he do all this? Because Jesus said that his nourishment, his pleasure, was to do the will of his Father in heaven and to accomplish his work. We battle with our passions. We battle with our desires. But our older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, does not. And he died so that we don't have to give in to those desires and passions which cause conflict in the church. But instead that we can trust in him. That we can go to him in the midst of those struggles. And we can cry out to him and ask us, Lord, please help me to walk in a way that would honor you. Lord, help me to love my brother or my sister. Jesus, right now I feel like I'm so right and I know they're so wrong. I want to have control. I want them to admit that I am right. But Lord, I know that if I go forward with this attitude, that I will dishonor your name, I will crush my brother and sister, and I will give a bad name to the church. Oh Lord Jesus, help me. And I want you to know, he is a God who answers such prayers. He is a God who gives us strength to, to obey him. Amen? 
Let's bow our heads and meditate just a moment upon the word that we've heard preached this morning. Our Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we recognize our total inability to master even the own, our own passions and desires of our hearts. God, we know that this is something that we will wrestle with until the day that we die. But what good news we have to know that we are not alone, that we don't, we're not no longer slaves or, or we no longer have a master over us that forces us to fulfill such desires, but that we have been set free in you. And I pray, Lord, that you would so work in our hearts today, uh, Father, to, to live according to heavenly wisdom, that our lives would be characterized by peace and righteousness, not by fights and quarrels. And Lord, I want to pray this morning, especially if there's anybody here today who finds themselves in the midst of a conflict, in the midst of, of disagreements, Lord, where they have just made a mess of things. Lord, I pray that they would turn to you and experience the hope that we only have in you. Oh, Father, I pray that you would bring peace to our homes. Lord, I pray that you would guard the peace in our church and help us to walk along with one another, to be patient with one another, not seeking to lord over one another, but to serve one another. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's uh, take our hymn books. As we uh, think about what we've just heard preached, let it be our prayer that the mind of Christ our Savior be ours. So let's stand and sing hymn number 644. <laughs> 